Hi, I'm Stacey Shumaker-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Eric Nissen Johansson is the founder and creative director of Stilt Trampoline AB in Gothenburg, Sweden. Taking a film director-like approach to his creative process, he often cites, quote, never do the film without doing the script first. Indeed, he pitches each project with a short written story connecting emotion to physical design. For more than 30 years, Eric and his firm have been pushing the boundaries of hospitality design worldwide. Most notably, they completed Peter Noster, the revitalization of an 1868 lighthouse into a 10-room hotel, which has gained worldwide attention and an HD award since it opened. Hi, I'm here with Eric. Eric, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm really good. Um, all right. So we always start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I'm, um, well, I live in Sweden, but I, I am Norwegian. So I grew up in an island in the Oslo Fjord. Yeah. So did you, were you a creative kid? Did you always have a love of design? I definitely think so. For me, it was like a strong compass, a pointing arrow. At school, I was the, the worst uh, the worst kid on most of the topics. And then I was the best kid on like 10% of the topics, drawing and, you know, sketching and stuff like that. So I, it was like just a big message saying to me, follow that path because you will be successful or not those or, or those or those because it will fail. So, <laughs> so I guess I was, yeah. Were you I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a proud, proud dyslectic. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, Makes you think faster. Yes, it does. <laughs> That's a cha- as a challenge. Were your parents creative as well, or yes. anyone? Yes. My uh, my father is like his his engin- he's an engineer, but his uh, education before that was like a carpenter doing furniture and stuff like that. And he's a he's a wood. After he kind of quit his went into pension, he's he's a wood carver. He always been very fascinated in walking with him in the, him in the forest because he sees a tree and then it tells me what to see. You know, that's a chair. He envisions this thing he can make from it, and he's really, really good. And my mother, she she passed away some years ago, but she she was a designer working, doing. She even did dresses for the Norwegian queen and stuff like that. So, oh wow, yeah, that's exciting. So, did you like, tinker with your dad, like while he's making things growing up, or yeah? And he was of the generation, you know, that fixed things instead of buying new stuff. Right. Which is diff- more difficult today because it's so much electronic in things. But I remember I was I I told him we need a stereo in the house because my friend he has a stereo and and I want the Philips one, you know. And he said, no, no, I can make one. And he bought parts and he made it. And you know, and I was a little bit ashamed then, but now I'm really proud. <laughs> yeah, I know you're like I just wanted the Philips one. <laughs> yes, whatever. That's amazing. Um, so, did you go to school for design then? Yeah. I uh, I had a very inspiring uh, drawing teacher okay. in the, the seventh grade, eighth grade, and she uh, talked very warmly about the Italian Renaissance. So that's why I decided to go to Florence to study there, study art and design. And so I formally I'm I'm an, uh, a trained artist and and a designer. Um. And uh, I met a couple of uh, good friends from Sweden there at, at the school. We were sharing some um, of the um, uh, art history classes. And we decided to almost like the Medici Renaissance model uh, studio uh, to start a studio. And I moved to Sweden after the school. And uh, 
uh, we have over five artists uh, having a manifesto saying that everybody is allowed to paint on everybody's painting without anybody being allowed to get angry. Oh, wow. So it was all about collaboration uh, and, and kind of accepting that your fi uh, initial idea might change and become something different. And, and, but different is good in, in our business, you know. Right. The hotel that sticks out is, is, is the commodity today, you know. Um, and that worked for <laughs> three years, but we, we also did, we also, we had a lot of friends in the restaurant business and we, so we helped them with designing restaurants and we did everything like from the invitation, the logo, we made a business card, a menu, we did interior design, we sourced the furniture, we, you know, we did kind of everything. And I, I guess I fell in love with that process, um, because I think also my, my art is actually collecting things and, uh, you know, putting them together in assemblages or, or three-dimensional collages boxes. Um, and it could be th th objects that have been thrown away from people, you know, and you find one and put an another and one might have some meaning, meaning to you and you put them together. It, it's like it creates a third space in a way. Right. That's exactly what you do with, uh, with interior design or, or, or hospitality design. You know, if you if you make a room, you change the wallpaper behind. It might be telling a tif totally different story. Right. And uh, when I did my art, or I'm still doing my art, it's totally un uncompromised because I'm I'm the boss. I'm the one who decides. But I'm really fond of that that Medici Renaissance col collaboration. That people with different backgrounds are forced to collaborate because the results, remember, are getting different. Right. And uh, so, so I, I almost get more reward from that, from from you know the struggle and and collaborating with a client, with a with um, uh, investors, with my fellow designers, with the, uh, with my opponent architect. Maybe you know we are interior architects, so we have always, almost always, if, especially if it's a new build, collaborating with a, with an uh, ar the architect, you know, and other consultants, of course, and. As you know, a hotel uh, or a restaurant is such a big project and complex, so you can't do it yourself. You cannot do it yourself. You have to, you have to be good at doing it together with other people. Right. And you have to, you have to create, you know, the, the operators. You have to give them a tool so their business can be even more successful than you than they would have been able to do alone, you know, or on their on their own. So I'm really fond of that. So I think that's. Um, and we kind of have an internal slogan as still uh, saying, let's make better mistakes tomorrow. Uh, and it's the, the trying to create a culture of uh, it's, it's, it's legal to fail, you know, because that's the, the biggest threat towards creativity. I think if you, if you don't allow people to do mistakes, then they don't, they get afraid and they will be, be afraid of trying to new things. Right. So I, th I also think we, uh, it took a long time for me to have a profitable business. I was always employing the best, the most creative people. And, you know, the, remember, we started as an art collective, <laughs> very, very disorganized. And, uh, and then I only in, uh, employed people that were really, you know, crazy. And, and, and we did magical stuff, but we didn't make much money. And it was, you know, sometimes it was difficult. And then... Um, uh, but eventually we learned, I, I realized that running a business is a totally different education, you know? Uh, so I think, you know, many, 
many of the successful companies, like hospitality design companies, are a group of people that founded it, and they have different skills. And also, successful restaurants often have a variety of owners. You know, maybe one with a chef background, and maybe one with, you know, economics or whatever. Um, yeah. So, so I feel many, like I answer a lot of questions. I love it. <laughs> yeah, like, wait, so many questions off of that. Um, so for, <clears throat> excuse me, so when you launched your firm uh, yes. so in 1991, so yes. 30 years, congratulations, you've survived for 30 years. Thank um, you. I, I was like uh, two when I started it. How has your company evolved in the last 30 years? What, wh- how have you changed it or adapted it for the industry and what's the what what was the idea behind the name too the idea behind the name is very simple it's it's it means stilts you know the walking sticks that you become like one meter taller than the rest a very cheap tool to get a new perspective but uh peter one of the guy that i founded the company with uh, still a very good friend that we we split up this is one of the paintings behind me that we did collaboratively uh we had we shared art history in italy and it was an old uh, teacher that uh, she was you know lecturing in italian and we we were really bad at language in the beginning so we didn't we never arrived in time for her lectures we were on a, in a bar outside in, and she knew that so she opened the window and screamed in italian i trampoli vieni qui subito or hey stilt guys because we were taller than the rest in uh, in our class so that was like her negative nickname, and uh, everybody started to call us Itrampoli, uh, which means stilts or the stilt guys, because we were taller. And when we formed the, the art collective, we needed a name, you know, something that, and and that was already stuck. So <laughs> that's the story behind the name. I love it. And so how has it evolved from this like art collective to where you are now? Um, I mean, you've done hundreds of F&B projects and hundreds of hotels. How did you go? From art to that, I think uh, a few things. I think that uh, we, I decided when I started this company in 1991 that I, I wanted to be really good at creating experiences that I wanted to experience myself. You know, through through restaurants and hotels, and um, I took the decision that the company should is going to be focused on hospitality. So uh, if a company or a client comes to us and say that don't admit to the hospitality industry, which is quite broad, actually, it could be, it could be a church, it could be a gas station, you know, if the owner thinks that he wants to also sell the experience. But obviously, a restaurant or a hotel is very, very... Uh, but that was a decision from the beginning. And then I also think that uh, one... So we stick to that, but another thing that I, uh, we had the ability when I started uh, in a very kind of ineffectively way uh, that we had a, the ability to sprinkle tink- tinkerbells, dust, stardust, artistic stardust on our, our, on, on our projects, which was a very drawback in the beginning because it made us very unprofitable. But the projects were sparkling. They were, people, they were fun. People loved it, you know, fell in love with it. And I think we now we are efficient. We can do the project within the time frame and within, um, you know, within the budget. Even if some clients would uh, <laughs> uh, hold me on that point, but um, we we still have the ability to sprinkle the same amount of stardust, and we also found an efficiency in that. Right. 
Yeah, we have a. I think we have a great creative process. By um, we 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 um, with sharp elbows, we we fought us to a position to be able to have time to come up with ideas. We say we can create a concept for you. It will take nine or uh, eight months. That's uh, that's at our point of negotiation, and sometimes it doesn't work. But you know, and then we um, we have a strong project management that collect all the info and the background info of the project and uh, we collect um, uh, a broad group of creatives from our studio art directors uh, copywriters storytellers uh, interior architects interior designers project designers and me and we read through the documents and the history and the background and we start you know throwing ideas and then after two hours we stop hmm. and then we wait at least uh three or four days until we sit again and then we stop and then we wait three or four days until we sit again and then we can run these processes parallel for different maybe sometimes we had like 20 projects in the ideas uh, stage going on at the same time and the thing that they start to even though their the result is really different because it's 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 a Kind of different different recipe with you know the owner with the building's history and you know the the, the what the purpose of the project they they start to um, feed each other idea wise and also the time in between those four days in between your brain is still working on it because right. sometimes I notice we become sit down again and people say you know I saw this film with my wife this this weekend and uh, they, they had like this background or I went to London and I met a friend and he told me, or, you know, um, and then they, they, they start to kind of, so, so it's an extremely efficient way of inventing the wheel every time. Right. I love it. Uh, How did you come up with that? The like start, stop, start, stop. <clears throat> I, I think it was because everybody had, you know, it's, it's very strong childcare in uh, Sweden. So everybody's liking to, to go and pick up your kids at, ki at the kindergarten it's the holy thing that you cannot you cannot miss that you get the, the evil eye from the kindergarten lady if you if you're too late you know so that, I think that's uh, <laughs> I I wanted everybody to be in the meeting I I, I felt also we had have a lot of interns and you know that a good, great idea is very democratic you don't need a big long education or or being an old person to to come up with a great idea it can come from wherever. And uh, especially when people with different backgrounds are bouncing their heads together. So uh, in the middle of the process, somebody said, I have to go and pick up my kids, you know, otherwise I'll get the evil eye. And, and I, we stopped the, <laughs> stopped the meeting and we rescheduled for, a, and I noticed that, you know, you can, you can run these processes parallel. And um, then we kind of try to make it as a rule because we noticed that, and, and I think it makes sense sometimes the clients are really, really, you know, neglecting that. That if you want a high quality idea, which is actually the thing that can create a huge queue after your outside your your hotel or or your restaurant, and then you have to respect that it takes time. You know, it's it's like the most important kind of asset or the the, the most important contribution that we add to the table, of course. Right. And sometimes we even have our clients in those processes uh, at some points or so, some of the meetings you know to, to and, and some other other times we don't but so I think that's um, that's a little bit of a creative process but also it ends up the first meetings we, we, we kind of get the 
yeah, also like a saying to explain how, how our method is to that we, we never do the film without doing the script first. So we, we try to create the emotional argumentation why people shall fall in love with this place before we start to use too much time, you know, before we start to, to put, um, invest and then we have one of our great storytellers to to put it into a format of a, our great story half half a page you know not too long not too short very lots lots of emotion in it and in the middle and it's such a great tool to check with your it's almost like a, a ton of mood boards you know you could ask your client to can you read through this and can you you feel the the, the 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 magnetism in this this narrative that will will that do the job? You think will people, you know, fall in love with this? So, and then we also notice if you do that first, the process is so much more effective. Right, because you have this playbook to come back to. Right, this yeah, exactly. And if you compare it, which is very makes a lot of sense for people, even not in the hospitality design business, that you have to you have to do the script before we do the film. It's so so easy to understand that it's really difficult to the set for the set decorator to start his job without the script. Right. He could he could start to buy the decor and you know maybe there you need cars in this film. Let's get some cars or whatever. Uh, but I really noticed that because you know exactly what you're looking for. Yep. You know, and it's a lot of share, chairs in the world. You know, it's a lot of fabrics in the world. It's a lot of patterns. You have to kind of narrow it down and understand what kind of world are you trying to achieve and what story do you want to tell. So that's something we've really been doing from the beginning. I, I also wrote a book some uh, many, many years ago now. In it's like in all the hospitality educations here in Sweden and Norway and Denmark. It's called uh, storytelling as a as a tool for the hospitality industry or something. We really worked with that very early on and we, and, and we, we didn't like find it somewhere else. We just intuitively felt that this is, this is the right way to approach it because right. it became easier. And, you know, we also all, always take, when we do the story, which is half a page, maybe we also synthesize it down to a sentence. We, 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 we lend it also lend it from the the name for that in the from the film industry the the five word pitch you know the one the if you can't sell your ID in five words yeah it's not strong enough and I also think that our firm is you get you get almost for free you know in in the bargain uh, PR strategy yeah because it's so easy to talk about our project it's so easy to be very very early on we think about what kind of what is the one image that's gonna um tell the story here um, and you know you know you work with this and uh you, i think the best asset you can have as a hotelier or a restaurateur especially a hotelier if you if you if you can create one one good image that is explaining in a split of a second the emotional argumentation why people should fall in love with it. That's your PR strategy. Yep. I, no, I love it because you're you're an editor, right? Like you're actually editing it all down to what it should be. And I think that's where 
places get that authentic voice, right? That everyone craves or wants. But if you can like distill down what you're doing into a simple sentence, like I think that sets you up for so much success. Yeah. yeah because you have to do the thinking. It's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of work behind that. Um, I was really impressed by Norway, which is my country, because they uh, boiled down a, a slogan uh, for the country, for the, the argumentation of going as a tourist to Norway. And it's powered by nature. It's three words. And I, uh, the more I think about it, you know, it works for Oslo. It works for, for a city. It works for going to a restaurant. It works for going to the fjords. It works for hiking in the mountains, you know, whatever. It's, if you, if, you know, the produce in a restaurant in the center of Oslo, it's also powered by nature because you, you got the fish there, you got the, the crops, you know, it, it's, it's a country with very few people. It's a lot of nature. So, you, you know, you, yep. you get the, the, the berries from the, from the forest and whatever. So, uh, and that's really, really difficult. It's so easy when you hear it, and, but the work behind is like the top of the pyramid and you really need to finish your thinking first. Yeah. And what? I think it's like if you're an editor and putting a great headline, capturing the whole essence of the story that might run for, for 14 pages, you know, that, that's, that's more difficult than writing the whole 14 pages, I think. I think that's what we spend the most time on our headlines and decks and yeah. everything. That and also uh, on an experience, you know, when I think if you, you know, interview some of our successful clients, then, then that's the biggest asset. I think they, they would say that they got from us yeah. that, that because it's such a good tool when you have to start to talk about your place and get it out. You know? right, you're giving them free marketing advice. That's great. <laughs> Um, so you said that it took a while to get profitable for those starting out and, you know, creating their own businesses. How did you turn it? What was the, what was the trick to go from being, you know, an artist collaborative to a successful business design firm? I, 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 uh, when I met Elizabeth, my, uh, my wife, not my late wife, because that's if she's dead, but we are kind of splitting up now, but we are still colleagues and working together. But when I met her many years ago, her father was a, an accountant working for British Petroleum. You know, he was the boss of British Petroleum accounting in Sweden. And he was just retired. And, you know, you, you retired overnight, you know, but this is your last day of working and then you finished. So he's like, his fingers was itching. So he started to kind of look through our papers and he told me that, you know, you have to pay the VAT. That's very important. You have to pay tax. And I said, do I really have to? Yes, you have to. <laughs> so he started to kind of clean it up. You know, the, he got rid of part of the DNA of an artist collective being very, you know, thinking only creative things is good and the rest is shit. <laughs> uh, and uh, then I all, all were, were never interested in being the CEO myself because... I knew that I was, I remember I knew I was really bad at that direction. So I al always had uh, other people taking care of the, bi of the business side of it. Um, but after that, it started to, you know, uh, go better. And, and then the next lesson, I think, was that it's so, so easy to lose money on a project, especially when there are some projects we sign is 
maybe four or five years long. Okay. And you have to negotiate a contract in the beginning before you start. And you can do one wrong sentence in that contract and you fuck up the whole the two last years, you know? Yeah. And uh, so you have to be really good at signing contracts and you have to, you have to put in stuff so you in the contract so you are able to get paid for extras that comes up and you have to you have to know all the all the all the dirty tricks that the client side can have can possibly come up with which is impossible um so when you get better at that then you have a fair chance of you know making money on your projects and then i think we did the mistake i i, I was really intrigued by working globally so right now we are working on five different continents. We have live projects in five different continents. Wow. And I, I, I thought that's really cool. And, uh, but it's tricky for the profits, you know, <laughs> uh, only, only, you know, Germany is very close neighbor to Sweden. And when we did our first project in, in Germany, we were really caught by surprise by the actual responsibility of the interior designer. It means something else than in Sweden that we were used to. So we kind of, you know, it, uh, and then you learn the lesson that if you want to, we're doing a 25 hours in Melbourne in Australia now. Yay. And a project is for four phases, basically, you know, they start with a concept. And, and there we said, uh, we learned our lesson. Australia is far away. It takes uh, two days to get there, you know, whatever. So it's not possible for us to be on meetings every second week or whatever. So we said, let's do, we do the two first phases. And then we have find a local architect or so that we can collaborate with, and they they will do under our supervision design wise. They will do the two last uh, last legs in the in the adventure, and then we will come down for the opening and drink champagne, and that that <laughs> also secures the possibility of make profitable uh, project around the world incredibly. Yeah. There's a lot of tricks, uh, and uh, but I think I think the best advice, if I have to give give one advice to uh, people that want to start up, is that realize that because I think it's most you know, people like me that are they did it because they were creative and they thought I have the ability to cr to create magic and and do places that people want to go into. Uh, but uh, admit that running a business is a different education. It's a different skill set. You need to you know. Take care of your staff. You need to encourage the, both the creativity and also the, the limits of t the time you spend. And they have to they have to understand the relation to to money. You know how how long time it would it would it take for this bar to to get their return on the investment and understanding all these things. You know and uh, understanding the importance of paying bills in time and you know simple things like that. But but ad admit for yourself that. It's a different skill set. So maybe partner up with somebody who's good at that or buy those services or, or learn it yourself or, you know. Right. At least that was, I think, my biggest mistake in the beginning. Got it. I would have, have a nicer car earlier. <laughs> <laughs> That's any, any, any people's goal in the world. That's a metaphor. Your, do you have the five words for your company? Uh, yes. But it's not five. It's um, uh, are the one sentence. Yeah, yeah. It's um, uh, hospitality extraordinaire. 
uh, which is a French English word actually, which is kind of borrowed for you know extraordinary with French uh, French flair, spelling. yeah, <laughs> French flair, right? And that's I kind of learned that expression with another interview a long time ago, and uh, it has like a connotation that's uh, it's it's extra everything, you know. Yep. Uh, and uh, we often say that. It, it, we will fail if we are not able to create a love story be between the user and the hotel, you know, and uh, so it's emotional driven. Uh, so that's why that sentence is really, really important. So that's our external kind of five word pitch and our eternal, internal, not, and also maybe eternal is <laughs> uh, let's, let's make better mistakes tomorrow. I love that one. So, um, but, um, um, yeah. What is it about hospitality that you love so much? You said early on you dedicated what you wanted to do. Or you dedicated your firm to doing hospitality. What was it or what is it about hospitality that draws you to it? I had, um, you know, my father was a engineer. He was working on a company that took in imported vents and really kind of technical equipment and sold to the oil drilling industry in Norway that was kind of growing and booming. So he represented different companies from different parts of the world. So he often had to go out to take a drink with the, with his, uh, the, the, the people from abroad that came to Oslo, you know, when I grew up. And I really loved, sometimes he took me to the bar at the, at the SAS hotel in Oslo, the coolest skyscraper. I, I was mesmerized. And uh, the one, one time, then I, I was not so old. I was like six years, I think. I think, and he, it was a gentleman from the United States that were invited over, and uh, he he happened to tell me that he was like an uh, American Indian, you know, like a like a, a na native American. And I was so excited. I told I told him I have to come, and I was and I came in, and he was so disappointed because he had a suit and a tie on, you know this. This gentleman, uh, but I I really love that. So I I I think these public spaces that that makes people make people feel different things. Yep. It's a, it's a really it's it's I, I think it's my as I told you before my uh, three dimensional collages my art that but in a big scale you know you can you can enter it and then I I really. You know, I, I, we met on different events uh, in the hospitality industry, and it's really people there who they are, they're from the hospitality. So they, they, they need to be number one, they need to be nice to people. Yep. Uh, they need to be good huggers. They need to be open arms. They need to be inviting people. They need to be good at conversation. So I, I'm in love with the people. I'm, I'm in love with the people from this industry. They are, it's, it's really nice people. I think I, I doubt that you know if, you, if if I had been a car mechanic, that the, the events in our that world would have been as fun. <laughs> no, they are. I do always say that the hospitality world are people like people like no other that you've ever met. So okay, let's talk a little bit about projects. Um, what was there one project that you think was your big break or really put you on the map? Um, one that helped you grow your business. I think, the, yes, there are a few, you know, milestones. Uh, first time we did a restaurant with a good budget. And uh, <laughs> I think our kind of international, when people started to get uh, eyes open for us as a company from Sweden, 
we uh, we got on the hotel Sonia. It's, it's a Radisson now in in Saint Petersburg in Russia, and it was the Baltic countries, the three Baltic countries' largest hotel group, Reval Hotels. That's the kind of name of the company, and they uh, wanted to. I think your magazine did a story of this hotel. And they wanted us to do their first venture in in St. Petersburg. And they told us that the Baltics kind of turned the back to the to um, Russia. They they went towards Europe and became members of the European Union and things like that. So we, do, we really don't have an emotional asset for the people of St. Petersburg to fall in love with us. So we need you to kind of think of that. So we went there to Russia. That was my first time in Russia, and we were there for a week. I think we we got paid for some of the days, but not all of the days. And we we kind of started to soak in, you know. And I had a very very pre uh, kind of stupid uh, uh, image of, of how the I thought the Russians were like the villains in the James Bond movies. But I found I found these people with double educations. You know, you you went to school for engineering, and then you went to school for poetry. So you could have something to discuss in the bar when you met people. So, and I've, we also found a reason for that. And the reason for that was the, uh, that uh, Peter the Great, he didn't found a city. He wanted to, he wanted to rival Paris as the cultural capital of the world. Hmm. So that, that's what, 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 that's, that was the purpose of doing this city. And you can see it in the planning. It's planned around the institutions. It's planned around the big museums and the opera and stuff like that. So people are, and it's also the official cap, uh, capital of culture of Russia. And you know they have uh, they have thirty percent of the Leonardo da Vinci paintings in the world in their museums there. So it's it's like, and they got the Marinsky Theater and what have you. And uh, at the same time, we went to all the hotels, and they were either Sheratons or Hiltons, or they tried to look like an American chain hotel. Interesting. That made a lot of sense after after the Iron Curtain fell, I think. So we really said, if imagine if we could kind of build a hotel on, on this thing that the people already were proud of. Okay. So we, we found an interview with a famous, very famous chef. It, I, th I think it was Newsweek, uh, the magazine that interviewed him. And the last question in the interview was, uh, what is the best guidebook to St. Petersburg? And he answered in a very Russian manner. He said, read Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. It's the most accurate portrait ever written of this city. So we thought, you know, if we can translate that book, that is the most accurate portrait of this city into hotel experience, that would be fantastic. So we managed, after a lot of convincing <laughs> to our client that they should uh, invest their $20 million investment in this in the story of this student killing this his uh, pawnbroker. And I was like, have you read Crime and Punishment? <laughs> Uh, but it's a very important book written 150 years ago from the, the, the great son of the city, you know, the, 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 the great author of uh, the greatest author from Russia, I think. And uh, it's uh, a story that every Russian and many, many others already have a relation to. So after a, a long kind of rant like that, they, they swallowed hard and said, okay, let, let's do it then. So we, and we did it. And um, I think we did it in a, in a, you know, in clever ways, sometimes in your face, sometimes very subtle, sometimes you need to ask to understand it. But uh, the hotel almost exploded uh, in the beginning. We They got a, a phone call after one week, and it was Ivana Machenko, the mayor, 
her her uh, assistant saying that um, Ivana Mashenko is coming tomorrow to open your hotel, and they said it's it has to be a mistake. And uh, they said now she's coming tomorrow at noon, and she came with with I don't know, but twenty journalists, and uh, she she heard about this hotel in a blog, and she said, "This is us. This hotel is us. This is what the story we want to tell to the world. Everybody thinks we are James Bond villains, but we are we are the cultural capital of the world." Right. So I want to endorse this project, she said, and um, she brought two people to the opening, and one was the. Um, the ma manager of the Dostoevsky Museum and they prepared a contract between the hotel that they were together promoting the big son of the city. And she also brought a tram driver who was called Dimitri Dostoevsky. He was the great, great, great grandfather of the author. And he's basically working there now, taking tours and eating dinner with the, I think he's only paid by free bar for life, you know, something like that. That's um, but, but the hotel became... You know, with and and the investment, the, the the budget was the same budget they would have had anyway. Right. Infusing this story into the mathematics became a hotel that was really as respected and loved by the the city, which is the key to make it interesting for for travelers that arrive there. That's amazing. You, I mean, as a designer, that must make you feel so proud, right? That you created something that's helping yeah. helping a city as a whole. I was there not long ago, two years ago or something, and uh, it was 12 or 10 years old then. And I asked the manager that I never met because he was new, and I asked him uh, a question I usually ask. What is the, what is the most negative, negative thing on uh, uh, TripAdvisor, the, the, the critic that you get? And he said, it used to be the dark corridors. And I said, used to? Yeah, because we got uh, a student working in the reception half a year ago, and she was a dedicated Dostoevsky fan, and she she knew everything about him. And she came here because he heard she heard the story, and she asked, "Can I work here?" And she got the job. and And she always starts by saying, "Welcome to the world of crime and punishment for from of Dostoevsky." And after that, the we they raised two points in general of, of on TripAdvisor without investing anything. Because people that the dark corridors made sense because they are supposed to reflect the the feverish walk, walks of of, of uh, uh, Raskolnikov, you know, the guy that the main character that chopped the head off the old lady. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's setting expectations, right? Like you come in the door, she tells you that, and then you're like, oh, well, now I expect this, right? So instead of and also, I think the internet and the, the distribution of hotels has kind of forced it into a very generic set of information. You know, do you have a pool or not? Or do you have, have large other rooms? Do you have a, you know, a bathtub or not? So every, all this information that differentiates the hotel from all the others, which this story does, yeah. until somebody else becomes number two and do, uh, you know, do the same thing. They are really, really important. I think that's one of the big, great assets of, of storytelling and trying to find something to attached ID to, you know, in, in uh, when you start up and try to try to understand the emotional argumentation, why people should fall in love. Has there been one project that you learned the most from that was the most challenging? I mean, I'm sure you learned something at every project, but one that you, you know, really kind of <laughs> made you think and <laughs> made you 
find an inventive solution? It's um, it's a lot of them. I think we we did twelve years ago, maybe Klaus K in Helsinki, which was the first member of Design Hotels in in Finland, and uh, it was a very it's a it was a big success, and they asked us after interviewing a lot of Finnish designers, and the Finland has good designers. You know, they have a huge industry of designing cruise ships and or or, or building cruise ships. Um, but the ma- the the manager he was uh, an, a manager and owner he was from New York from America so he was kind of thinking a little bit outside the box compared to other fin- fins on the market and uh, the the building was called Klaus Kurki which is a character from the na- Finnish national epos Kalevala so he said somehow I want to work with that narrative. And nobody there. I, all the Finnish designers thought that was too tacky. You know, that was too. That was, or maybe they said tacky and felt it was scary, a scary road to go. You know, it, I may, might become the laughing stock of, of of my fellow designers because I, you know, took on this impossible task. And um, we we uh, we really liked it, and uh, we did a very kind of modern interpretation of of that story, which is. You know, uh, extremely important. Uh, Finland was under Russian rule for many, many years, and then under Swedish rules. So during the Russian rule, the, this book was b- banned. It was illegal because it was stories from sixteen hundred years back in time, where when they were free. So that's why it was so important for their freedom movement. And it's like any like uh, Genesis story. It's it's really. Crazy shit, you know. I, I would like to smoke the things that the per- person that wrote the book smoked, um, and um, it you know the Genesis story is about a, a, a bird. It's, it's before land exists, so it's a bird landing in the in the ocean, laying and laying an egg, and it falls down to the bottom of the ocean, and it, it cracks, and the yolk becomes land, and the, the you know yeah, straight. so. So we have the seven eggs. We have the the, the reception desk it looks very modern, but it still looks modern. But it's like uh, one of the eggs, and it be divided the hotel into the dark and fair side, you know. Uh, uh, so the nightclub and the restaurants are on the dark side, and you know, uh, and the room rooms are half of the rooms were on the light side, and and I I, I really learned there that. There is also always like the same thing in in Saint Petersburg. There is always something that that unifies a group of people. Uh, let's say, in this case, the Finns, and uh, that's the, it, it's their sense of you know pride, or or it's something that makes you American, or that that has a kinship for to other all the other Americans. And if you can find that and and work with it, it's super strong it's effective it's like from day one you you open a hotel that's already famous because that book is already famous and it's liked and people from finland said that you know uh, well i i didn't really read it but i remember my grandmother read it to me when i was a kid and she you know she figured it was very important but there's also a risk going that path designing because you could you could uh, end up Becoming the laughingstock and the, you know destroying their national <laughs> epos and making a very bad um, interpretation. 
And so you have to kind of have to be brave and, and dare to do it. But if you manage to land on your feet, the reward is fantastic. It's, um, you just um, have to land on your feet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> dare greatly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's talk about the one that just won an HD award. So congratulations. Yay. Thank you. Um, Peter Noster, um, which uh, was an old lighthouse. I mean, you tell that, I mean, it's such a cool, I, I, talk about like an idea that, or being super authentic um, that you can't replicate. I mean, tell us a little bit about it and how it was an old lighthouse and how you turned it into a cool hotel and where it's located. It's, <laughs> talk about a project that, uh, that I talked about before, the having one image that kind of sells the whole right. emotional argument. And there is a few drone pictures that I took on, on the little speck of land, this little tiny island in the big, big ocean and nothing around it, you know. And I think, you know, the part of the success of Paternoster is the, the pandemic, that it was a rare time in history that every person on earth was sharing the same problem. And this image kind of presented a solution, you know, somehow. You, could, you can run away from everything out there and it's, there's, there's problem free. But I, I normally I present myself as a, I'm a fisherman trapped in a hotel designer's body. So I really like go fishing. And um, we have a summer house north of Gothenburg and I have a boat there. And uh, when, I, when I have, when I have spare time, I go there, go fishing. And to get the bigger fish, you need to go far out where the light, lighthouse is. It's, it's, a, it's very dangerous reefs. And uh, it was uh, up, the lease was up for, up for grabs. And uh, it's the government of Sweden that uh, managed it. And they, the, the, the branch that managed um, the royal castle and the fortresses and the important historical buildings. And it wasn't a case of bidding the highest, uh, paying the highest rent. It was just a case of, it was a fixed rent. And in case of they, them believing the people behind has the skill set because it's really, really difficult to manage a nine-room hotel on an island very far away. Every, you know, every bottle of wine has to be brought there by boat, and boats are very expensive, and uh, it has to be the, the glass has to be brought back with a boat and thrown away. And uh, I had some, we had some friends, were some friends that also had a love relationship with the, with the island. My business partner is still, he is a big sailing fantast. Uh, he's, he's, he really likes sailing. And um, we had uh, friends with a restaurant license, liquor license. And so we, we had a good skill set of people, seven, seven partners. So we won the contract last beginning of, not last summer, but the summer. So with one year and a couple of months. They have been running it. And it was obviously in the middle of COVID and uh, uh, the biggest crisis in the hotel industry's history. So, uh, um, so we, we you know, thought, what, what shall we do with it? We didn't obviously have a huge budget. We didn't want to risk too much. But it's also the first project that I became a partner in, also in the operations. But still, it was the design company that did the concept and... Uh, and we said, uh, we, we read an old book that talked about the lighthouse people, and it was 1868 they opened. And they opened after a long, long debate, 50 years debate, that everybody said that it would be much better for the ships to put a lighthouse out there because the lighthouse was further inland and it was very inaccurate. So people crashed in the reefs because of that. And uh, people said in the same sentence that, but you can't, 
live on that island. It's too sparse. It's too difficult to get food. It's too, you know, whatever. And then they built the lighthouse and three families moved out because it was three, it was kerosene driven and it was like a clockwork mechanism that you had to wind up every hour that turned the whole thing around to make the blink se sequence. And uh, so it was three people that had to run it and they were entitled to bring their families. So it was three families moving out. And they proved every, all the skeptics wrong. They had a really good life there. All the kids that were born in the winter half of the year, they were born on the island because they couldn't go into the hospital because of weather. And they grew, they were fishing, they were hunting seals, seabirds, and they were never shortage of food. And they had a really great life. Even they were, they were making, to, growing tomatoes in the lantern because it was kerosene driven. It was like uh, very hot and all, they got fresh tomatoes all the way around. And that story inspired us. So we said, and, and then the lighthouse was abandoned in 1977 because it was a, a mechanical, fully mechanical lighthouse that was built in the middle of the ocean. So the building started to move, this, getting destroyed and everything. And then uh, the lighthouse itself, which is in cast iron, was supposed to be dragged out in the sea. And then people started to protest because it was like a symbol of whatever. And they managed to raise money to restore it. So, um, so now it was beautifully restored. And uh, we said that we, we don't want to open a hotel. We just want to open the home of the lighthouse masters and invite people to live on the terms of, and conditions of this island, which means that you have to follow the chef down to the shore and pick the seaweeds and uh, go back in the kitchen and help to prepare the uh, the eelgrass seaweed that if you if you fry it in oil for 20 seconds it turns into truffle it tastes like truffle you can make fantastic stuff with it and we fish lobster and we fish you know with our clients so that's what what we wanted to do so we said that uh, okay how can we make this the authentic home of the lighthouse master and we, we decided to buy a 70% of the, all the furniture is secondhand from the area to get the right DNA. And we, we bought new art, contemporary art, mixed that together with black and white footage from old people that we met that told us I was a, my father was a lighthouse master. I grew up on this island. I mean, we, we managed to take pictures of their albums at home. And um, uh, we were, I was stuck there in uh, last summer because we, it was a lot of Swedes that came that couldn't go abroad. You know, they, they couldn't go to their, their villa in France or whatever. So they came to visit us because they thought it was exotic. And, and people really, really loved it. And, um, and I was there with my drone. I was there with my camera. And I, I, one day I thought, you know, this sunset is the best sunset ever. And I flew up with my drone and took the picture. And then two days later, it was a even better sunset and four days later it was even better so i kind of refined my album of footage the whole summer and then uh, i started to send it out to a few people that i knew you know and in uh, in end of august and it just exploded it just like went by itself i think on on um, the the uh, the potential reach of uh, which is the way you measure digital newspapers so you know is we, we have until now 14, I'm, I'm not saying the wrong finger, 14 billion people that we have met. It's like double the number of people in the world. Wow. And we had um, 
uh, and then I think it's more than 6,000 articles written about it. Well, I can't wait to visit it. It looks magical. Uh, you mentioned this has been the worst thing to hit the hospitality industry with COVID. Um, what has the last year been like for you? How has it changed you as a leader? And how do you see the industry evolving or changing or, or just moving forward? Um, I think from the beginning, I was very afraid. You know, I was petrified I, and, and all the employees. And um, I think everybody in the industries had a wait and see attitude. They, they, they stopped all the investments and, they, you know, I have to. But then some brave people said that we, we did a restaurant locally here in Gothenburg during the pandemic. And he, it was a guy that I made, I made good money through the years. And I, th I never think it, the opportunity to close my restaurant and renovate has been better than now. So I was planning to renovate in two years time, but I'm going to do it now because there is no clients anyway, you know? Right. So, and then you have the, the, a lot of, Operators that have been struggling and they have that had the need to bring on more capital or more money, and which means actually more other people being in charge or owning parts. And new people means need for innovation. They want to do things slightly different, and and I think there we could be relevant for them, and uh, that we see that, um, and and um, but I think. It has changed me as as a as like a colleague of my other partners and my employees. That this was like one of the things. I think it was almost like nine eleven for people living in New York. That it was unimaginable before it happened, and then actually after you, you know it, wow it can happen. And if somebody. I, I remember I read a protocol from a, a board meeting we had at still uh, I think one month before it hit, you know, hit the, so it was in February or something. And we said there, you know, well, okay, what about this virus from China there? And uh, ah, well, it, it won't, we don't see that as a threat at all. You know, it's, it won't, it won't come here. And, uh, you know, or we, we didn't, we didn't have it in our vocabulary. Okay. So I think, you know, being, being humble, that big change can happen and nothing will last forever and uh, ever. And, also, this will pass, yep. you know, that notion, that feeling makes you more, more, much more prepared for the unexpected, which I think is sometimes you have employees, workers, designers and architects and the project managers here that say that we have to find a, we have to find a way to work. We have to find this, we have to put down in this um, blueprint of how we do things, in which order we do things. And I also always thought that, you know, the, the set of people that are in a project it will always be new. And you have, the, you have the client with the money, a bag of money that he or she sorely earned through the times. And he will have to pay us some of that money and uh, it, you have to think that it's worth it. But apart from that, the process will be different because it's different people. So you have to almost, instead of, creating a blueprint of how the project should be run, you have to be prepared that it's going to be different every time. Right. And I think the pandemic taught us that the hard way. Um, and um, also, you know, a lot of tragic, tragic things in our industry. For example, that 
it's an eye opener. I think that we pay restaurant workers too low. You know, to we 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 don't treat them well, and, and I think you see that in all the countries in the world that it's difficult to find restaurant staff now because they they were they were kicked out of their business and then they had to do something else. And maybe they're working in a factory and they feel that well, this factory is actually treating me better, you know, than before. Or so it's a lot of learnings from it. I think. Yeah. Uh, how do you see the industry changing or adapting moving forward? To in respect to the like, crisis, yeah. After COVID, do you see it changing yeah. or? I think there are there are things that everybody are expecting uh, that they will. Everybody says that it seems like everybody try to convert their hotel into some some. Um, like city resort destination with a lot of fun things to do, you know, so every boring business hotel need to be more colorful or something because they saw that that was the only hotels that worked during the pandemic that had like a entertainment content somehow or another. And um, uh, then I think uh, a lot of this, and, and I think also that a lot of people think that this, the big conferences with, with like thousands of people, thousands of people will, will be the last thing to return. Uh, but then you have people being really, really hungry for entertainment, having a good time. So if you try to find a trip, you know, a package trip now to a warmer climate during the winter, everything is sold out. Um, and I think it's, in many respects, it was like a, um, an amplifier of existing trends. Oh, well, for example, the, the you know, like we are doing now. You're in New York, and I'm here, and we talk to each other, and that that was much more alienated before. And right. uh, um, I remember we had a in Copenhagen is three three hours by car from here, and we have a, doing a, we were doing a hotel project there, also at twenty five hours. And they uh, the owner said that you really have to be here every week for a meeting, and and we know those meetings that. Is maybe two percent or four, four or five percent of the meeting is it's concerning interior design, and you know they had the electricity, the vents, and whatever. So, um, and then he was forced to do them digitally, and then he suddenly said that you know this is much more efficient, it's cheaper, it's, you know. Yeah. So a lot of people was like of like forced into that, and I think also this this programs, this Zoom and Skype and whatever, has become so much better. Yeah. Um, and then I think the if you have hotels, you know, like Paternoster in one end, which is very, very uh, experience-driven, and it's like entering a world with different uh, terms and conditions. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have hotels that actually are delivering capacity of rooms to a big city where there is a big traffic. They will be struggling more and more because there is no emotional argumentation. And the the... The unique experiences that that actually gives you stories and ammunition to go back and tell your friends that uh, you have, what you have experienced, they will really, really be the winners. And I think you know when we read uh, the briefs from all the the big hotel companies about their brands, you know, and uh, you know what us designers have to think about. It seems like everybody's writing the same thing. It's they they need they they want to kind of be relevant to the local community. They want to be experience-driven and and of course it's, it's difficult when you're uh when you are called marriott and you 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 know but 
but it's, it's easier when you when you are actually a very small independent something that not even call you a hotel but that that the so the experience driven hotels i think will will have a a faster renaissance than than they had actually before right. so um, and i uh, you know i think also a big takeaway for me is that I've been really missing my industry and hugging my nice friends around the world. And my mother had a very was, was a very had a very simple philosophy: never forget to hug. That was you know if you if you remember that your life will be better. You will die maybe with a smile on your lips. You know, it has a big consequence. So and I I even realized and learned that she was even more right than I thought before. This pandemic. I love that. I'm going to keep that in mind. That is amazing. Well, and I think that's a perfect place to stop. Um, Eric, thank you so much for taking this time um, to chat with me. Um, it's been such a pleasure as always. Thank you. It was my pleasure. It was fun. Hopefully um, I'll see you in real life soon. Yeah. Hopefully they will let the Europeans in before your next event. Yes, that would be lovely. When they open up, I'll be there. I promise yeah. you. Great. But we'll have... Uh, a glass of champagne to celebrate the HD award. Yes. Maybe two also. Yes, we can do that. All right. Well, Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. See you soon. Keep in touch with everything you're working on, please. I will. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.